I love seeing so many folks that are headed off overseas. It was at our 9 a.m. service, we have our, uh, our red line, our, our younger kids, like elementary school age kids, in the room with us during the worship. And uh, I just, it was just a good moment to realize, like, I love our kids, too, being able to see, oh, man, when I, when I grow up, this is something that I do. I get to follow Jesus and go overseas and be a part of that. And so thank you to everyone who's going. I'll be joining on the Liberia trip. I'll get to be over there with them, and so I'm excited to be a part of that trip as well. Uh, we're going to receive our offering right now. So this is a chance for those of you who have come prepared to give. Uh, this is truly an act of worship. Uh, when, when, when you give to a church financially, I know there's oftentimes a lot of you know, weird feelings that can come with giving towards your church. Here's what this is. It's believing in the work that we're doing in the city. I believe with everything in my body that Jesus Christ is what transforms lives, and the hope of the world is Jesus working through his local church. And so when you give, you're saying, I believe in this church, I believe in the ministries they're participating in, the work they're doing overseas, the work they're doing in this city, and I want to be a part of it. And so to those of you who give, thank you. Let me pray over our offering, and then we'll jump into the Word. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, everyone who has come prepared to give today. God, as we dig into your word right now, I pray that we would have open hearts. I pray that you'd use not only our time in the word to change us, but use our offering to change us, to change our city, and to actually go forth and make much of the name of Jesus. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead, open them up to Romans chapter 7. I think, if I recall, it's on page 943 of the House Bibles. Let me see. Romans chapter 7. Yes, 943. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. In the very early church, there was a man by the name of Augustine. You ever heard of Augustine? Saint Augustine is what he's oftentimes called, or in the West, we like to call him Saint Augustine. Uh, but his name was Augustine. He was an African man who had a tremendous uh, footprint in the history of the church. Uh, he shaped a lot of what our modern-day Reformed theology, even though that's rooted in the Reformation like 500 years ago. You, you trace a lot of the actual thought and theology way back before that to the early few first centuries of the church, especially through Augustine. Augustine was a major contributor, one of the early church fathers. And Augustine wrote a, not a lot of books, but one in particular shocked the world when it came out. And it was a book by the title of Confessions. Anybody ever read Confessions? Yeah, a handful in this room. Confessions is a shocking read. I remember the first time I read it, it was about 11, 12 years ago. I was overseas when I found a copy of it. And uh, Confessions, the reason it shocked the world is because in Confessions, what Augustine does is he takes you in with total transparency and clarity into the inner depravity of his own self. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about Augustine here, one of the great church fathers. But he lets you in. You almost, when you're reading this, you almost feel like a, like a voyeur, like you're seeing something you shouldn't be seeing. You're looking in on Augustine, describe the pride in his mind and his heart. You're looking in on Augustine, describe the lustful thoughts that he has the lustful dreams that he has. I mean, he, go, he goes into everything in this book. He goes through being an egocentric person and, and, and wrestling with theology and doubts, but then all the while it's interlaced with the gospel and with how God meets him in that place. It shocked the world, and frankly, it's shocking today. If you pick it up and read today, it's still shocking to read words like that. Now, what's so interesting about Augustine and what sets him apart is not that he had a different mind or a different heart than any of us. 
It's not that he struggled with different thoughts and different actions and different ways of living and different sins than anybody in this room. It's just that he had the courage to actually say it. He actually put pen to paper and wrote it down and allowed the world to look in on his life. You know, I say this often from this pulpit, but it's going to come up as a major theme today as well. And probably today will be the clearest I've ever said it. It is so easy to keep our sins private. It's so easy to come into a church like this, looking good, have your act together, try to look like you, you, know, you take care of all your business, and, and you got things together because when you're in here, it's the best version of you. And these people don't know the other version of you. You know the other version of you, but these people don't, so you can be one version here and another version out there. You can act one way, you can think one way in here, act one way, think one way out there. I wonder if anybody would be willing to stand up here and actually share what really goes on in your mind. I wonder if anyone would actually be able to get up here and share what you really did this week, where you fell short. I wonder if anyone would be willing to get up here and actually share from your heart the depth of how wicked you actually are all the way through. We study this stuff in the Bible, but we don't say it to each other in community. And because of that, we have a lot of weakness within our community we have to work through. I wonder if any of us have ever actually prayed that prayer of David. Remember? Oh God, search me and know me. You know my ways. You know my thoughts from afar. Even before words on my tongue, behold, oh God, you know it all together. You know why we don't really pray that? We give lip service to that. The reason we don't actually pray that prayer with power and meaning is because for God to actually search you and know you means that he's going to do some business in your heart that's going to be painful because ugly stuff's going to come out. But what we do, rather, we give lip service to it and we expect no change. We just kind of assume that we're fine. How easy is it to come in here and just go through the motions and forget what the church is kind of all about. Next week, we're going through the book of Romans, and next week we hit Romans 8. Okay, Romans 8. This is the chapter. Romans 8. It's like the chapter. If you ask people who have really studied the Bible and they're really thinking about what's the greatest chapter in the Bible, pretty much hands down, everybody says Romans 8. We're going to spend four weeks in it because it's that good. Romans 8 is going to make you so excited about the gospel. But to get to Romans 8, you first got to go through Romans 7. And Romans 8 is powerful when you actually take time to reflect and respond to Romans 7. My job today is to set Kenson up for next week. My job today is to make you beg for Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of the Spirit of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's that good. It's that good. You're going to want it. You're going to want it so bad when you understand it, only if you get through Romans 7 first. If you can go where Romans 7 takes you, you're going to be crawling back next week asking for Kenson to read Romans 8 to you. Now, Romans 7. We're, we're going to be in Romans 7. Now, today, we get to 
approach what is one of the more theological troubling passages, perhaps might I even say controversial passages, in the entire New Testament, particularly in Romans. And that's saying a lot. Romans chapter 1, we've already covered the topics of sexuality and homosexuality. That's pretty provocative. Romans 13, we're getting to government, talk about divisive issues in our day and age. I got some fun sermons ahead of me. Romans 7, this one takes the cake. This one's going to be pretty stirring for us, and particularly in the world of theology. Because what Paul does in this section is he works through the inner workings of the human heart and exposes sin for what it is. And we don't like to go there. Neither do theologians, by the way. All right, so what I'm going to do, here's the big idea for this text today. Ready? The battle, your battle with your sin is real. Your battle with your sin is real. That's it. That's as simple as it gets for a big idea. Your battle with your sin is real. Now, to put that another way, someone who says the opposite says something like this. When you become a Christian, you should have life together. You're done battling with sin. You just live in the fullness of being a Christian, and we have tidy, clean lives, and everyone gets along, and that's what Christianity is. Romans 7 says, no, 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 no. Your battle with your sin is real. We're going to work through it in three passages, in three different... I've got a lot of text to work through. There are three sections. The first section is the root of the battle. The root of the battle. Paul begins, chapter 7, verse 7. It says this, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Let's pause right there. Now, we've seen Paul do this a bunch so far, haven't we? All through Romans, Paul asks a question and then asks us to dialogue with that question. 61 times in the book of Romans, Paul asks a question. This is an old Greek way of teaching. Guys like Plato, guys like Aristotle, this is what they would do. They would actually pose a question, and it was a form of teaching an important point. And the question he's asking here is this. Look, Romans 6, you just got done saying, Paul, that, that, that sin has a total hold over us, and it's all bad. So does that mean that the law was bad? Can we blame God's standard for our life and say, that's the problem? You know, God's standard, that's the root of the problem. His standard's too high. If his standard was just different, then there wouldn't be so many problems in the world. We wouldn't have to solve this whole thing. So can any of us just point to God's law and say, that's the problem? He says, by no means. Let's keep going through. For I would not known sin, yet Yet, if it, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment the promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Now, let's pause right there. We learn a few things about the law, and this is kind of review, because Paul's done this, he's talked about these topics a lot in Romans. First of all, the law reveals sin. Isn't it, look at what he says in Romans 7, the law reveals sin. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. 
God's law is good, his standard, his righteousness. He reveals to us how we ought to live, and that's good and right and true. And every follower of Christ inside of us should have a flame inside saying, I want to live a life that honors that standard of righteousness, not my own, because that's good. I love that. But look at the sin he picks to talk about first. Coveting. Isn't that an interesting one? Of all the commandments he could have chosen, he could have chosen murder. The thing about murder is, you murder somebody, more than likely you're going to get caught. You could have talked about stealing. You steal enough times, eventually you're going to get caught. Coveting? Mm, that one you can keep pretty private, can't you? It's pretty much in your mind most of the time. Oftentimes, coveting will manifest itself in actual other sins, but to covet is actually a sin of thought. And because of that, it's very easy to come into church every week week in, week out, and be full of covetousness, be breaking God's holiness, and no one ever needs to know. We've built an entire society on coveting. The great American lie is that to covet is good, thou shalt covet. And we built entire industries around it, literally marketing. That's what marketing is. Now, for those of you who work in marketing, I love you. I'm not saying your nature, ontologically speaking, is wrong or bad. I get it. Sales is good. Capitalism is a fine structure. I'm, I'm, I get it. But I am saying that at the heart of the American ecosystem is coveting. We covet everything. We covet what we don't have. And literally, God says, thou shalt not covet. People of God, this is not to be true of you. We covet other people's possessions. We covet other people's homes. We covet other people's kitchens. We covet other people's bathrooms. We covet other people's jobs, their life circumstances. Singles covet what families have. Families covet the freedom that singleness have. Singles, you better know, families actually do that. I know you always think the grass is green on the other side. Families oftentimes covet the freedom that singleness, singles have. We covet other people's gifts. Why don't I have the gifts someone else has? Why can't I do such and such as well as someone else can? Well, because God didn't make you that way. Simple as that. You don't need to covet it. You're you. You're you. I'm me. He's him. And we all have our own gifts in its own measure, and that's God's prerogative. But we covet what other people have. We covet talents. We covet money. We covet forbidden women, forbidden men. Read the book of Proverbs for that language. We covet an image of a lifestyle set by culture. We covet. Gotcha yet? Now look at this. The law not only reveals sin, but the law condemns sin. Again, this is a recovering re of what he's already worked through. Verse 10, the law promised life, but proved to bring about my death. Sin, when we break God's good and holy command, is worthy of capital punishment in the kingdom of God. Let's get that language. The wages of sin is... Death. Come on, say it louder. The wages of sin is? Death. Is death. That's scripture. In America, certain states have capital punishment laws. You commit a certain crime, you're going to have your life taken from you. That's the just penalty for that particular crime. That's how it works in this country. And in God's economy, in God's kingdom, when you covet, what's the wage? It's death. Now you say, well, there's a problem with that law. That seems out of whack. That seems like it's too much. But see, that's the question Paul asked. Now you understand why he's asking the question. Is, there, is the fault with the law? Is God's good, holy standard the problem here? By no means. 
By no means. It's sin inside of us. The law condemns sin, and all sin is a capital punishment, separation from God. What's the culprit? Sin is the culprit. All through this passage, you see how active sin is. Sin is almost personified. Look at this, verse 8. Sin seizes the opportunity. Verse 11, sin deceived me. That comes up again in verse 13. Verse 11 again, sin killed me. There seems to be this force, this seeming uncontrollable force, though it is controllable, this seeming uncontrollable force that lives within every human being, Christian as well, that wages war for the Christian against your new identity. You got a new identity in Jesus Christ. He changes you, and yet sin is constantly waging war against the newness of your new identity that says that God is good, his law is good, I want to live by that, but sin keeps getting the upper hand from time to time. And I love how verse 13 says it so well. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sinful beyond measure. See, now that's beginning to get to the language of someone who's actually wrestling with just what it means to have sin inside of you. To not just casually not care about it. To not be callous to it. But to actually realize that the more you think about the sin that's inside of you and the affront that it is to a good and holy God, the more you hate sin. See, what should be happening right now is there should be bubbling up inside of you this hatred. I hate that I sin against a holy God. I hate that my mind does not think the way God would have me think. I hate that I covet things that other people have. I don't want to live that way because God is good. His law is good. Why do I keep doing the same things? See, that hatred of sin only bubbles up in you when you take time to actually reflect on the sin that's within you, how unreflective of a people we are. I was a kid. My mom took me to a play, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anyone ever seen Dr. Jekyll and Hyde? A few people nodding their heads. Here's what this is about. This is a story of a man. It's one man who's got two separate identities, two separate personalities, and it's a war between these two identities. Which one's going to gain the upper hand? On the one side is Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll is this great, upstanding citizen. He's a wonderful man. Everybody loves him. He's a good citizen, a good neighbor, a good friend. He takes out the neighbor's garbage for them. He's a good guy. And then you got Mr. Hyde. And when Mr. Hyde kicks in, man, he is a wicked man. He's evil. He's a murderer. He's constantly hatching schemes how to kill people, how to steal from people, how to tear people down and tear people apart. And the whole story is this amazing dichotomy of these two personalities waging war for the one person. Robert Louis Stevenson was the author of that play, and he was a Christian man. And after it came out, the papers came to him and said, well, this is so good, this is great, where'd you get the inspiration for this play? Robert Louis Stevenson said, I found it in my own nature. I find there is always a struggle with the beast that lives within me. I wonder if we can actually agree with him on that. The Bible does. Romans 7 does. But I wonder if us in this room, followers of Christ, can actually, with certainty, with reflective spirit, with authenticity and honesty, say before a holy God, there is wickedness inside of me. I sin 
my thought life, in my heart, in the way I speak, in the way I engage. There's sin. There is a beast that lives within. That's the root of the problem. And now we get to the reality of the problem. Now, this text is incredible. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read most of the rest of the remainder of chapter 7 to us. And as I do, I want you to put yourself as if you were saying the words, okay? As I read this to you, I want you to hear it as if you were the one speaking it. And I want God to do a work on you in this moment. And I want him to bring to light what what is the sin that he's bringing to mind for you as I read this text to you. Okay? This is going to hit all of us in different ways because we're all different people with our own stories and our own sins and our own baggage. But it hits everybody. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good, or I'm sorry, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or a principle or a norm in my life that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. This is Paul. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Pause right there. We read the law is spiritual. It starts that way. Such interesting language. What does that mean? The law is spiritual. It means that the law is not just physical. God's law gives us governing principles for what we ought not to do and what we ought to do. It's both against the negatives and for the positives. And God's law tells us how we ought to live in a good and just society. And it's not just for the people in this room, by the way. God's law is the standard by which every human being, no matter what religion or culture they come from, will be judged by. It is the standard over humanity. It's this law, nothing shall be added to it. That's scripture. God's law is good and righteous and true, and it's spiritual. It's not just the physical, what you can and can't and should and shouldn't do. God's always after the heart, right? Remember that old song, I want you to want me. That's God. He was the first author of that song. God wants you to want him, not just to obey the commands, right? If I just give my wife a Valentine's Day card and give her some flowers and take her out to dinner and then call it a day, but she knows my heart's not in it? That's not what my wife is after. My wife wants my heart, and the law is spiritual. God's always after your heart. Now, if you're in this room today and you're checking Christianity out, I want you to know you may have heard that Christianity is a series of do's and don'ts, and that's ultimately what it is. It's a religion. That's actually not true. Yes, There is a real God. Yes, that God has defined what is good and true and holy and just and right for all people. Amen. But it's also about your heart. God wants to transform you from who you are to who he's going to make you. Now, this is exactly what Jesus always came down on the Pharisees for, wasn't it? Remember Jesus? You tithe mint and rue. 
but your heart is far from me. You do all the things God tells you to do, but the one who could look inside their heart and actually knew their heart better than them, that was Jesus, was looking at them, seeing their obedience without their heart and saying, you got it all wrong. And that kind of lifestyle gets you in hell just like any other lifestyle does. God wants the heart. He's after the transformation of the heart. And look how Paul works through this battle with sin, the reality of sin. It's, it's almost awkward, kind of like reading confessions from Augustine. Here's Paul saying, this peering into his heart, and you see a man deeply struggling with the reality that he keeps sinning in ways that he doesn't want to sin. Now, the reason this passage is so controversial is because Romans 6 has just got done saying, your battle with sin is over. He's a defeated enemy. And so that's led some scholars to read Romans 7, that whole I do what I don't want to do passage, and say that must be talking about the pre-Christian life because that can't be true of a Christian. How, how, could, how could he say you're dead to sin but still struggling with it? Let me read to you what he just said in Romans 6. This was last week. Let's recall what he said and why this debate is here. Romans 6, 14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Okay, so sin's got no dominion over me. Romans 6, 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Once again, 6, 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. And the fruit you get now leads to righteousness and obedience. In 6, chapter 6, it seems to say sin is dead. It's done. That old life is done away with. How then in chapter 7 can he be saying, but there seems to be this ongoing battle with sin that takes place? Now, to the commentators that say that he must be speaking about the pre-Christian life, I say, you are just not being honest with your own sin. (laughs) You have not actually taken the time to reflect on the reality of your Christian life because if you had, you'd realize that this text lines up with our current situation very well. Now, it's not my only argument for saying that this is of the Christian life. The text itself argues for that, but I would also go on the record saying this is practically speaking the Christian life that everyone I've ever met lives in. This is the battle. The battle is real. When you accept Jesus, your sins are forgiven in full, paid in full. Every bit of forgiveness you could ever have is because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. His blood shed to forgive you of your sin. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. He covers it all. You can't add to it, right? Christianity is not, I go to confession, I confess, and then I sin, and I'm bad, and I'm bad, and I'm bad, and I'm bad, and and then I confess, and then I'm clean again, and then I'm bad, and I'm bad, and I'm bad, and then I confess, and I'm clean again. Christianity is the moment you believe in Jesus, you are cleansed from your unrighteousness. You're forgiven in full, and God declares you a son and daughter of the king. And the reality of how that plays out in your life is that that redemption, that redemption that God gives you through Jesus Christ is applied to you in stages. You live into that reality in an increasing way in your Christian life. The Christian life is a journey as you battle with and have victory over sin. And sometimes that battle lasts for a long time. It can be years until God gives you a full victory over a particular sin. Now, Christians will have victory in this life. I am not saying that sin will gain the upper hand. Mr. Hyde does not win in the Christian life. And yet, there is a battle that takes place. The journey of sanctification begins the day you believe in Jesus. 
The day you believe in Christ, God gives you his Holy Spirit. He declares you new and the old is dead and sin has been killed in your life. And yet that dead body of sin seems to cling to you and oftentimes tries to draw you away from your new nature. But the journey of being a Christian is that as you look back over the course of your life, you can look back and say, I've grown. I'm not battling with the same sins I was. I'm a different person, and God's transformed me. I now love Jesus with a greater passion, and I hate my sin with a greater passion. And those two things grow simultaneously. As you learn to love God, you learn to hate sin. You can't have it any other way. Your journey of redemption is applied to you in stages. In this life, we taste of paradise, don't we? You get given the Holy Spirit. You learn to love God and what he's done for you, and you can almost, you can almost grab heaven on some days. But oh, how we groan in this life. Isn't that true of our story? We groan in this life. There's a painful reality of our own sin as it plays itself out in our life and in other people's life around us. And there's a painful reality of their sin and how it plays out in their life and how it impacts us. The reality and the presence of sin is that the conquering of sin is both beautiful and ugly at the same time. It's beautiful because it, it's, like, it's like watching a, a gardener go to work on a rose garden and just trimming away on it. It's painful. And if ever, you ever see that happen, he's just clipping all this sin away. But it's also beautiful because what comes out of it is this fruit. Now, if ever you've heard of the term indwelling sin, if ever you've heard of the term indwelling sin, that's not just a theological term. That actually is rooted from verse 20. That's where that comes from. Verse 20 says, Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We have this presence of sin that's still inside of us, that's clinging to us, that forces us sometimes to obey, even when it doesn't actually have the authority to do that. We look back to our old ways. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now I'm not sure about this. There are some commentators who note that in Tarsus, where Paul grew up, there was a certain kind of capital punishment that was true. Just like in the Roman days, there was crucifixion. That's how you killed people who were guilty of capital punishment. Well, in Tarsus, they had their own thing. And this is where Paul grew up. He may be referencing this in this passage. There was a certain form of capital punishment where if you killed somebody and it was a horrendous enough crime, and I apologize, this is gruesome, but it's important for understanding the passage. What they would do is they would take the dead body and they would tie it with ropes onto you, the murderer. And over a short season of days, perhaps weeks, as that body began to decompose and everything that happens with that, it would slowly kill the murderer. The image there is important. This image of this, this dead enemy that is clinging to you by ropes and you read that battle that Paul is going through. I hate that I keep doing. I, I wake up and I don't want to do it, but I, I love your law, but I'm still in sin. I, I want to grow, but I can't. And it's like there's this weight that's tied on to you that keeps drawing you back. And you cry out as a Christian, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, I want to come at this from a different angle for just a moment. I see two key challenges that I see in this particular church that need to be addressed today and that we need to wrestle with as a church. Number one, I, I think in this church, one of the things that happens is we don't reflect on the passage like this, and we don't actually confess our sin in any meaningful way. And, and the reason we do that is many. We come into a church like this, we put on our Sunday best, we, 
We try to behave as Christianly as we can. And, and what's funny about that is if we were to truly behave Christianly, we would be confessing our sin to one another. That's Romans 7. To be a Christian is to know that we don't bring anything to our own salvation but our sin. We bring brokenness. God's the one who brings the goodness. God's the one who brings the wholeness. And yet in this life, we're full of sin. See, and when we don't confess to one another, we create these cliques and we create these, it's impossible to actually have authenticity within the church. And church, can I tell you, sometimes I look at us as a church, I feel like there is this satanic blanket laying on us. It's just like this heavy fog laying over the church. And no one wants to talk about it. We all come in here, we listen to this sermon, and we're so full of wickedness. And we know it. I know my mind. And nobody wants to actually confess in a meaningful way. Even in close relationships, even in small groups. We come to a church all put together and we make it impossible for people who have actual real hard brokenness in their life to come in because we don't confess anything. We pretend like we have it together. Let's do an experiment for a second. Here's a quick experiment. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up, okay? Here's what we're going to do. So don't stand up yet, but in a moment. If you are in a season where you long to be in the Word and to be in prayer, and you want to have more regular rhythm, and, and you love that, you love God's Word, and you know you ought to be doing that, you've heard it said, and you, you've tasted of it. When you're in the Word, when you're in prayer, it's so good. But then you wake up in the morning, and life's busy. You woke up late, you get emails from work, and it just seems like you can never quite get that rhythm, and you want to grow, but you can't. Now, not yet. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up, if that's you, okay? If that's you, I want you to think about that for a second. All right. Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'm just kidding. You don't have to stand up. You were ready. Jackie was ready. My confessor right over there. One in a hundred. That's good. Here's the thing. You feel the adrenaline going? You feel the blood pumping a little faster? What is that? Why wouldn't we stand up? You know why? Because you're afraid to let everyone else know that your spirituality is not quite as deep as you want everyone to think it is. You're struggling with the same sin that you've been struggling with for a long time. And you like being able to come in here, keep it all quiet, keep it all hidden, because as long as you don't say anything, then everyone will just assume that you got your whole act together and you're a super Christian. As it turns out, super Christians are the ones who are the first to confess, just so you know. That's what Augustine did, remember? We remember that guy pretty highly. Let me read to you from chapter 12, verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9, he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So you want to start tasting of authentic Christianity and real transformation, start confessing to each other. You want to have actual victory over habitual sin in your life? How about you get a group of people around you and you confess to each other? That's where there's victory. Every time I've seen significant victory in my life, it's when I engage in confession with others. Men, let me speak to you for just a moment. You need other men. Daniel had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go through it with. We need men in our life to actually confess and hold us accountable and pray with us and put their hands on us. Men, you need it. Women tend to do this better than us. We tend to want to be strong, not weak. Jesus entered, he used his strength and showed it and demonstrated it through weakness. Men, I need you to find men to put around you, to actually grow. 
we need to lift this blanket off this church. Otherwise, we are without hope. There's nowhere to go beyond where we've come. The second challenge I see is this. Our lack of awareness about our own depravity causes us to be highly judgmental of people in their brokenness. Park Community Church 101. Welcome to the church. Because we don't take time to reflect meaningfully the way Paul seems to have done here, and he, he verbalizes it. He allows God to do a number. What happens is, is that we actually start to believe that we have our act together more than we really do and that our coveting and the, the sins of the mind are somehow better than someone else's sins, are somehow less wages of death than other sins. And so then other people come in and they've got these other sins that they're working through that we're not particularly working through, but they're working through, and we look down our nose at them. How could they do that? How could they be... Look at how they treat their Facebook. Look at them. Have you seen the pictures they post? Have you seen what they said to them? Did you see how their kids behaved out there? I know how I take care of that. You see how messy their home was? This is what we do. And you know why we do it? There's two different things. It's one thing to be a confessing church and to just have so much power confession that, that it's just raw, it's authentic. And when that's there and there's a presence there, you are invited by others to speak into their life. Did you know that? They'll invite you when you're authentic with your own life. But when there's no confession and you're just pointing fingers out to other people, it's just judgmentalism. It's not Christianity. It's something else. And the world looks in and all they see is judgmentalism. And the church looks in and wonder why we don't grow and get out of habitual sin. I know this is true because I see it in me. You know, I have like the worst job in the entire world. <laughs> I love what I do, but genuinely I have a hard job. You know why? Because every week I got to read this Bible and apply it to my own life. And this week was a toughie. This week was a toughie. So let me do some confession with you for a second. I've seen something growing up inside of me in the last year that I hate. I hate it. I remember when I started being a pastor, I said, I'm not going to be that. I don't want spiritual pride. I want to keep my humility. I want to be a listener. I want to learn from every voice at the table. Everyone's got something to teach me. That was, I, that was like my thing. I remember stepping in being, I'm never going to lose that. And in the last year, here's what's happened. I, I really, I've, I've learned to piece this thing together better than I ever have. I mean, I, I love studying, and I'm telling you, I, I have more conviction on the things of culture and the things of the Bible, and I have more clarity on my theology than I ever have. And I love that. I think that's good. But what's happening as a result is I find myself all the time talking way more than listening. All the time. I'm like the Bible guy with the Bible answer. And it's such a lack of humility. I shared with Noah earlier. I, I feel like, I mean, I'll be in meetings with Noah. I'll have, you know, we get these 10 pastor meetings. I get 10, 12 guys around a circle. And I find myself, I'm the first to jump in with the comment. I know where to go. I know how to answer it. I know, I, what is that? Why, why am I jumping in faster than other people? Why am I not learning from every person in the room? When did that happen? When did I become the very thing I didn't want to be? And you know what's happening? Now, it's this weird thing. I wake up on Tuesdays. That's our staff meeting day. I wake up on Tuesdays, and I literally wake up, and I say, I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to listen. I'm, gonna, I'm not just to paste it on. I really want to learn. I'm going to do it. And then I get into the meetings. I just keep talking. And then I finish my Tuesday, and I go home. I say, I did it again. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's the passage. None of us have made it yet. If you think you made it, you missed it. You might not have it at all if you think you made it. There is this journey. I am not saying that you will have victory over every sin immediately. That is not the story of Christianity. These battles last a long time. I am saying you will have victory over sin, and that oftentimes comes with a long season of battle. There is a very real war taking place for the authenticity of this church. Satan has a blanket, just a heaviness. And to get it up, we need to start confessing with each other, praying as if we were real people, not pretending we're getting all together and we have all our life figured out and we're happy and everything's fine. we got to actually do the hard work of confessing. God's forgiven you in full. That's the freedom in the Christian faith. You're not going to be you know, somehow cast out if you confess sin. You get more people around you to love you and to care for you and to transform you, and then you start forming other people's life. You're fully loved despite your sin, despite your shortcomings, despite your lack of zeal, despite your judgmentalism, despite your lack of faith, despite your ego, despite your humility, despite your failed promises. Christ transforms you. He's working on me slowly. He's working on you slowly. And Lord willing, we're all going to look back a few years from now and say, look at who I was. Praise God. Look at the journey he's brought me through. That's the story of Christianity. We've got to let people in a little bit. Now, what do we do with this? I'm going to give you four quick applications, super fast. Number one, we go before God and we say this, God, I love your law. Your law is good. I love it. In my inner being, I long for your law. I want to know you and your word. And then we say, God, I hate when I sin and I'm sorry. I love your law, I hate when I sin, and I'm sorry. Isn't it powerful when you say you're sorry to somebody? Say that to God. God, I'm sorry. And then you say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then you say, Jesus Christ is going to deliver me. And then you keep saying it until you're delivered. That's the Christian journey of transformation. Park, next week we start a four-week series through Romans chapter 8. To make that mean anything, everyone in this room has work to do. This week, this week, this is your homework. You need to be a reflective people. You need to take everything you just heard. You need to allow it to shape your soul. You need to make your Christianity something that it hasn't been. Because if you do that this week, if you do that hard work, and you do it in community, and you allow Jesus through the Holy Spirit to speak to you, you're going to come in next week, and you're going to be jumping out of your seats with praise because of what Romans 8 has to say. But you've got to do the work of Romans 7 first. Amen? Now, here's what we're going to do. We need a time of prayer right now. And I don't want to leave this sacred space without having a time of corporate prayer. We do this occasionally together as a church. And so I'm going to invite you to stand up right now. We're going to have a time of, frankly, just confession. And here's how it's going to work. For those of you that have been trained as deacons or prayer warriors, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take a spot around the wall somewhere in this room. 
I, some of you may never have been in a church that's done anything like this before, and if that's the case, sorry, we're weird. We pray in this church. That's kind of one of the things we do. Uh, what we're going to do is have a time where the band's going to be playing some music behind me, and you can see around the room right now a handful of folks in the back as well, a handful of folks who are making themselves available to pray with you. If you've got ongoing sin in your life and you want it to be broken, come to them. If you've got something in your life that you want to actually pray over, maybe you've been hiding your sin, maybe you need just prayer, maybe, maybe you just haven't been living authentically and you just need to like get it out. You need to pray with somebody. There's power when you pray with your church. And so I'm going to invite you to get out of your seat. I'm going to invite you to walk around the room. Get out of the room. Go around. Maybe find a quiet space. Let's, we can move. It's church. You don't have to sit all tidy the whole time. We can get out of our seat. Maybe, how about this? I'm going to invite you to pray out loud with each other. The band will pray, uh, play loud enough that we're not going to hear each other's conversations. Husbands, pray over your wives. That's biblical. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray with them. Pray for power. Pray for your family. Pray out loud. If you came with a friend, ask him, what can I pray for you for? And if you've never done this before, it's okay. It's a good place to start. It's a safe place right here. Get out of your room, out of your seat. Come find someone else to pray with. Let them pray and linger in prayer for just a minute. Let the Holy Spirit do something in you. Maybe you just need to sit. Maybe this is super uncomfortable and all you got to do is just sit quietly and just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Do that. That's great. That's great. But I want us to be a praying people. And to do that, I need you to take a step of courage. So get out of your seats. When the band, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you. Get out. Get out of your seats. Pray over each other. If you need prayer and you, don't, you can't get out of your seat, just raise your hand like this. And if you're around somebody who's raising their hand, turn to them right then and there and see how you can pray for them. All right? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you. Get out. Let's move around. Let's have just a little movement in this church. And we're going to pray out loud to God. Scripture says that our prayers rise up before the throne of God like a fragrant aroma before the king. Isn't that interesting imagery? Just know when you pray and that rises up as a fragrant aroma, he hears and he answers. So we're going to have some prayer. I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to send you. I'm going to, I'm going to set you free to walk around this room, do what you got to do. When I say church pray, you can pray. Father, have your way with us right now, please. We've got so much growth that we need, Jesus. There's so much just kind of satanic influence in little areas of our life, and we don't acknowledge it. And so, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you begin breaking that even right now? Holy Spirit, I pray in this moment that you be bringing conviction of sin and courage in our people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you be bringing just authenticity and the confessional spirit in our people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you bring about a desire to pray with each other and for each other in our people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use each other in each other's lives to break chains of sin. Holy Spirit, would you move us to pray and long to pray and yearn to pray? We need your work in our life. We can't muster that on our own. Without you working powerfully in us, we got nothing. It's only the Holy Spirit working through us. Holy Spirit, make us a New Testament church. Holy Spirit, build us as a church, as a people committed to each other. May we be bold in our confession of sin because there's, no there, there's nothing you can't forgive or have forgiven on the cross. You've forgiven it all. Holy Spirit, let us live in the fullness of our freedom. Church, pray.